Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 85. Today is the last of our series in the Gospel according to the Old Testament, and we have worked our way from Genesis now all the way to Revelation to see that what the Bible describes to us is one message of salvation and one plan that God has been unfolding all the way from the time that sin entered into the world and he revealed that somebody was going to come to crush the head of the serpent and to bring victory for God's people and to deliver them from the bondage of sin and the situation that they found themselves in now as enemies of God and now outside of the blessing of fellowship with him that they previously had been enjoying. And we saw that by looking at three main things. We looked at the fact that when God made that promise in Genesis 3.15, that promise was given to Adam and Eve, and from that point on, the question was always being asked, is this the one who is to come? That question was normally asked in terms of the leadership structure with God's people, that of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And what we've been doing in our previous episodes, we've been looking at how Jesus is the grand fulfillment, not only of the promise in general in Genesis 3.15, being the one who is going to come and destroy the works of the devil, but also the one who fundamentally fulfills the obligation in the office of prophet, priest, and king. So we looked at the fact that the Bible called out these figures with these Old Testament types or Old Testament uh, prefigures of who Jesus was, that in Abraham, or I'm sorry, that in Moses as a prophet, that in David as a king, and the entire Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament as the grand high priest who was to come. And we've been bouncing back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament and seeing how the Bible again and again tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. But these things are not unrelated to the big picture, but are actually little fulfillments as part of the grand fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That is to say, we have one gospel, one good news message, that is being fulfilled in all of the fine details of the Old Testament and the glorious appearing of Jesus in the New Testament. So that is, in a nutshell, the kind of things that we've been looking at. If you happen to miss any of those episodes, please feel free to go back to betterbiblereading.com and you can find those previous episodes. Um, Would really be helpful if this is your first time listening in or watching on YouTube. But we are going to wrap things up today. And the way we're going to do that is not by answering every remaining question about the Bible or theology or Jesus' work, but rather by looking at how we come back in some ways full circle, and in other ways we move beyond what we saw in the beginning. So today we're going back to the garden, sort of. My question that I want to ask for all of you listening is... How would you describe heaven? Somebody came up to you, let's say, theoretically, somebody walks up to you on the street because that's where these kind of scenarios happen, and they were to ask you, how would you describe heaven? What would be your answer? 
how would you go about giving them an answer of what heaven is, where heaven is, what are the characteristics of it? Well, the book of Revelation paints a picture for us of what heaven is in terms of place, also in terms of scenery, and in terms of the entire setup. What is fascinating about how the book of Revelation answers that question is that it doesn't go the route that you might expect. It certainly doesn't go the route that secular culture tries to describe, at least those who are left in secular culture who are even talking about the idea of heaven. It doesn't go the route that you would typically hear. One of the things that I think about is sitcoms. And growing up, a child of the 90s, you had these sitcoms where somebody would be dreaming that they were dead and they would ascend into at least what they thought was heaven and it was really this huge white room and people are like you know half holographic and they're wearing these white robes but they actually look like sophisticated cavemen right they're not like uh, Roman Empire robes they're like like bedsheet robes you know just this really strained perception of heaven of floaty people wearing white in this huge white room that has no end to it. Well, that is not the kind of heaven that is described to us in the Bible by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, we actually have something far different. Let me read to you how that is described to us. And again, this is not a plot twist. This is not a secret. The title of this episode is Back to the Garden, so you can imagine kind of what route we're going here. But let me read to you at least one image of how the book of Revelation describes heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, what it means to dwell with God forever and ever. Here is what Revelation 21 says. I'm going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, what you don't see there, at least at the very front end of things is a depiction of a garden. But what you do see is the same kind of depiction of the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden. Adam and Eve, before the fall, before they sinned, before the serpent came and tempted them and they 
gave in to the temptation of the serpent and sinned against God, before that happened, they were dwelling in the garden with God. They had a relationship with the Lord. They were participating in what he was doing. They were living the life that he had called them to live. And they were in a sense of joy and true fellowship. When you read the New Testament, for example, the lineage of Jesus Christ, when it backs up all the way to Adam, Adam is rightly called the Son of God. That identity, that fellowship, is, at a very basic level, man dwelling with God as a child of God and God as his God. In other words, there is a covenantal relationship. God was their God. They were the children of God. They belonged to him. They were in a deep sense of fellowship with God and had all their needs met. That is what is so troubling about the fall of man in Genesis 3. That is what is so troubling about the fact that they were banished from the garden because it's not so much just the fact that they were banished from a physical place. It's the fact that they were banished from the kind of fellowship that they had previously enjoyed with God. What we see in Revelation 21 is that things turn drastically back to the kind of relationship and fellowship that we saw only back in Genesis 1 and 2. And again, you see that in this closeness idea, this covenant idea, this fellowship idea, that God's people, the New Jerusalem, are prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And also the idea of dwelling, behold, God... Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then again, it, it even repeats that idea. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, what we're seeing is a reversal of the terrible interruption of Genesis 3. We're seeing the work of the serpent to create a chasm between mankind and God, to sever the fellowship and relationship that mankind was enjoying with God, we're seeing that healed and healed in a definitive way, healed in a way that can never be reversed, healed in a way that means no more possibility of sinning, no more possibility of being separated from God, no more possibility of the kind of life that we, people in a post-Genesis 3 world, have only ever known. We have only ever known what it means to live with the struggle of sin. Even as Christians, to live with the struggle of temptation. To live with desires that are still twisted and distorted. Um, the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. That is the only kind of life that we've ever known. But there is a time when we will go back to... Genesis 1 and 2, but the beautiful thing is, unlike Adam and Eve, where they were still fragile human beings with free will, with the possibility of sinning and rebelling against God, we will be absolutely perfect. We will be in a place where there is no more sin. There is no more death. There is no more possibility of rebelling against God and going our own way. 
but we will be kept completely by God forever and ever. That's one of the reasons why he can say something such as, he will wipe away every tear, death will be no more, no more mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now those things were all the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin. You think about that. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, what was true about Adam and Eve? Although it doesn't say that they were weeping, it does say that they were hiding. They were, they were sad. They were in a state of shame. They were in a state of, of abandonment because they had realized that that glorious relationship that they had enjoyed with God as people outside of sin was now severed. It was now terribly distorted. And God had told them as well, when they sinned, they would surely die. And of course, they did suffer a spiritual death. So all mankind, from Adam and Eve onward, have been spiritually dead outside of Christ. We need Jesus Christ to bring us to life spiritually. But we also have the expectation that one day we will all physically die. And 10 out of 10 people physically die, with the exception of Christ himself. But with the glory that he gives to us as children of God, we not only experience, even today, as Christians, spiritual life, we also expect that even though we will physically die one day, we will be physically raised to life, and that physical resurrection, that bodily resurrection, is not going to be a temporary thing. It's going to be something that never reverts back to a state of death. He says that, again, death shall be no more. Those former things have passed away. The death of death, to put it in Puritan language. This is a fascinating thing when we think about how we're being brought back now to a reversal, a situation like what we read in Genesis 1 and 2, but also one that is far superior to Genesis 1 and 2 because the good news for us is that when we go, when we actually get to enjoy this full experience of a Genesis 1 and 2 life with God, there's no expectation that maybe there's going to be a Genesis 3 situation coming for us. It's actually far better than Genesis 1 and 2 because that's where we get to remain and with even deeper fellowship with God than Adam and Eve because we will be totally glorified just as Christ, and that's something that Adam and Eve did not experience. Let me actually show you now how we are moving not only to the situation, like we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, but also the actual terrain, if you will. We now see this in Revelation 22. We're, we're now in the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22 we're still seeing this description of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. And here's how heaven is actually much more earthy than we might expect from our 90s sitcoms and whatnot. Here's what it says. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, in some ways, this is kind of a rehashing of, of what I've already said, but it's also an expansion because we have here now an explicit reminder of the situation in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. The kind of atmosphere to which Adam and Eve got to live and enjoy fellowship with God with a notable expansion. That expansion is the fact that Adam and Eve did not get to partake of the tree of life. They sinned, they were banished from the garden, and God did that, as we read in Genesis 3, He did that explicitly to keep them from eating of the tree of life. Now, the question, of course, always comes up, was it a literal tree? Is it, is it figurative? Does it serve some sort of like metaphorical purpose? And that is not necessarily the important question for us to ask, although I, I grant that while it's possible it could be symbolic, I, I think there's no reason for us to think that it was literal, and, and even is literal. But that's not the, the thrust of the argument, nor the kind of question we should be asking. Instead, we should be asking, what is that fundamental change to where Adam and Eve were in a place Although every indication that they were recipients of God's grace and they are also in Christ as, as we are. If that's true of them, then why were they not allowed to eat of the tree of life? Well, I think the answer is found in verse number 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. In other words, as long as mankind is in a state of sin, as long as we are in... Um, a situation to where we participate in the effects of the fall and also where we're subject to a broken world that is part of the fall. The tree of life is not for us. The tree of life is only for those who have a right to eat of it. And while we enjoy God's grace, while we enjoy the full assurance that we are going to be with him forever and ever in heaven. That alone is not hope enough for us that we're going to be able to enjoy this tree of life regardless of whatever literal or figurative meaning that has with it. The Bible is clear that there is a right to the tree of life and Adam and Eve did not have that right. So we're not only thinking about here grace and forgiveness. Okay, you, you can come on in. You can enjoy the tree of life, but we're thinking of obedience. We're thinking of merit. We're thinking of some kind of righteousness, some kind of requirement that's been met in order to enjoy that tree of life. And where do we see this? Where do we see something occurring to where we get to enjoy it by way of right. Well, we just read here, at least in this passage, that this place where God's people are, 
is where the tree of life is situated. I'll read that again. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So implicit in that verse there is that the people who are right there in the midst of the tree are going to get to partake of the blessing of that tree. But we still don't know exactly how if we were to isolate ourselves just to that one passage. But what I think is really helpful to us is to look at the book of Revelation as a whole. To go back to context clues or verses that were kind of thrown out there earlier on that might give us a clue to this. And it turns out there actually is at least one very explicit uh, verse, and that is in Revelation chapter number 2, where Jesus is speaking to the Ephesian church, and here is what he says. At the very end of his instruction to them, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you were to follow that whole thrust of Jesus' uh, seven letters to the seven churches, the very first part of Revelation, you would see that there's a lot of emphasis on enduring and making it to the end, conquering language. But what is true also, if you were to look at the book of Revelation as a whole, is that the conquering or the enduring that God's people experience and exhibit is a necessary consequence of the fact that they belong to Jesus Christ himself. In other words, the book of Revelation is teaching that we participate in the conquering and victory of Jesus. What is the conquering and victory of Jesus? Well, we could look at a whole bunch of different angles to describe what that looks like. We could talk about his uh, conquering as a suffering servant of God. We could talk about the fact that he conquers as a, a lamb who was slain and didn't open its mouth. We could talk about how he conquered by way of his obedience. Or we could actually sum it all up and see that in all the ways that mankind fails, Jesus is victorious. In all of the promises that are given to us in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills them. In all of the ways that we are let down by looking at something shy of Jesus, we are greatly comforted and satisfied in Him himself. In other words, Jesus conquering is the full subject matter of the gospel. Jesus conquering is his remedy to Genesis 3. It is his fulfillment of Genesis 3:15. And when we belong to him and when we are in him, we are also conquerors alongside him. That is what is true of all Christians throughout the ages. But what is also true of all Christians throughout the ages, as we see here, is that if we belong to Jesus, if we participate in his conquering, that means based on his virtue, based on his resume, based on his track record, based on his qualifications, we gain the right to eat of the tree of life. 
we now are graduating into a further sense and a deeper sense of fellowship than what Adam and Eve were, were situated in. Because in Genesis, they did not pass that test. They did not overcome temptation. They fell. They sinned. And they disqualified themselves from that probationary period where they otherwise would have gone on to presumably eat of the tree of life and be confirmed in their state of obedience and righteousness. We needed a greater Adam. We needed an Adam who could do that when the first Adam failed. That's what was one of the first things we looked at in this series of how Jesus is the greater Adam. And he further shows how he is a greater Adam because he is the rightful prophet, priest, and king who has dominion over God's created order. In all of those angles, the gospel, according to the Old Testament, if you will, we see that it all points us to Jesus, and then when we get to the very end of things here, we have now made it to the glorious conclusion of the fact that Jesus Christ welcomes us into his fellowship, and he welcomes us into life in the garden forever and ever. Well, friends, thank you for listening to this conclusion episode of the Gospel According to the Old Testament. I appreciate your listening support, and I look forward to wrapping up this year with you. We've got a couple more episodes to go for the Better Bible Reading Podcast until I sign off until the beginning of 2021. So please stay tuned for more episodes and more details. And to find all of that, head on over to betterbiblereading.com. I'll see you over there, and thanks for listening.